Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. All right, saddle up, guys. This is a long one. You ready? I am in my saddle. Yes. I mean, I don't know the episode. The the episode might not be long, but it's a long introduction. Oh, okay. Yeah? Yes. Can you, you, you comfortable? Yeah, I'm in my saddle. All right. Take a deep breath, Rob. Right. I don't know why you brought the horse. It's really hard to get the mic up that high. Well, because, you know, Dan brought the saddle and I brought the horse. And, and James is spending all of his time keeping the horse quiet. Yeah, he's a good horse. On the night of 17 July 1918, let's, let's go ahead and murder a czar, shall we? Why now that not? we're in a good mood. On the night of 17 July 1918, Tsar Nikolai Alexandrovich Romanov II and his wife Tsarina Alexandra were shot and bayoneted to death, along with all five of their children in a small basement room in Yekaterinburg, Russia, and their bodies were dumped into unmarked graves. Tsarina Alexandra Romanov left three books by her bedside when she was executed. The Bible, Tolstoy's War and Peace, and the fourth edition of Sergei Nihilus's The Great and the Small, containing one of the most notorious narratives in the history of modern writing, the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. The Protocols claimed to be the recorded minutes of a secret Jewish government organizing a Judeo-Masonic conspiracy to conquer and control all the nations of the world under a single Jewish overlord, In his first attempt to distribute them, Nihilus had the protocols printed in pamphlet form and distributed to various high-ranking government officials. As they passed from hand to hand, they were picked up and gradually published in installments in the anti-Semitic newspaper Zanamia. Russia's Romanov dynasty had held a grudge against the Jewish people. In 1881, Alexander II, Nikolai's grandfather, had been traveling in his bulletproof carriage, a gift from Napoleon III to see the military roll call at Mikhailovsky Menage, a regular Sunday activity for the Tsar. The public gathered alongside the narrow pavement of the Catherine Canal as the carriage passed, and a young man named Nikolai Rysakov stepped out of the crowd along the road, holding a white package, which he suddenly hurled beneath the hooves of the horses pulling the emperor's carriage. The explosion wounded the driver and killed at least one of the Tsar's guards. Alexander emerged from the carriage shaken but unscathed. It was at this moment that Ignacy Hernyuwiski, a member of the same People's Will Party as the failed assassin Rysakov, tossed a second package, this time at the emperor's feet, crying out to the monarch, It is too early to thank God. The explosion shattered Alexander II's legs, tore open his stomach, and mutilated his face. As Ivan Emelyanov, a third bomber in reserve, in case the first two failed, faded back into the crowd, Alexander II was rushed to the Winter Palace by sled, where he bled to death. His son, Alexander III, who witnessed his father's death along with his own son, the future emperor Nikolai II, began his reign by withdrawing civil liberties and launching a campaign of police brutality, including the May Laws, severely restricting the rights of the Jews. Intended to be temporary, the May Laws ended up on the books for the next 30 years. This instigated the first round of pogroms, riots intended to abuse and harass Russia's Jews, with many blaming the Jews for the Tsar's death. 
Nikolai II followed in his father's footsteps, resisting calls for a constitutional monarchy and insisting on absolute power. When the pogroms rose up again in 1903, some believed the new emperor Nikolai was actively encouraging them. The infamous Protocols of the Elders of Zion, purporting to be the minutes of a meeting of a secret Jewish elite to conduct a widespread conspiracy for global domination, passed to Nikolai through his uncle. His uncle was the Grand Prince Sergei Alexandrovich. Philip Stepanov had first brought them to Sergei in 1897, written in Hectograph Jelly. They'd been copied from a handwritten version translated by a Russian woman who discovered them in the home of a Jewish friend in Paris. After reading the protocols, Nikolai hoped to launch an official government campaign against the Jews. But his minister of the interior was suspicious of the protocol's origins and conducted an investigation. The minister discovered, much to the Tsar's disappointment, that the book was in fact a forgery. There was no such thing as a secret Jewish government, and the meeting recorded in the protocol's pages had never taken place. Although Nikolai abandoned the protocols on his minister's advice, his wife Alexandra assisted Nihilus, compiler of The Great and the Small, a book containing the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, in getting his book past the censors and published. It just so happened that Nihilus was well-connected in the Tsar's court. He had arrived at the Protocols after being dismissed from his post with the Russian Ministry of Justice. He moved to France, where he had a son out of wedlock, suffered a nervous breakdown in 1894, becoming obsessed with the coming of the Antichrist. That obsession would morph into his belief in a Jewish conspiracy against Christianity. Nihilus says he received the protocols from a Russian spy present at the first Zionist conference in 1897. Somehow, the philandering conspiracy theorist managed to marry a lady-in-waiting to Grand Princess Elisaveta, and through this connection to get his book into the Tsarina's hands. It must have provided some twisted form of comfort to the Tsarina in her last days as she reread Nihilus's argument that the Bolshevik Revolution was part of a Jewish conspiracy, first devised by Solomon 900 years before the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish conspiracy to conquer the world without shedding blood. Her suffering was not isolated in this narrative, and Russia was not alone. She was caught up in something much grander, much bigger than herself. There was nothing she or Nikolai could have done to prevent this from happening. Although the first edition of Nihilus's book didn't command much attention except in elite Russian circles, there was a second printing that wandered further afield and fell into the hands of individuals across Europe. The protocols would go on to be translated into German, English, French, and even Arabic, persisting long enough to inspire an upstart politician named Adolf Hitler in his plan to revive the German fatherland after the severe losses suffered during the First World War and they are a central component of the Illuminati conspiracy going back to its first modern articulation by Nesta Helen Webster. Here we are, gang, going after the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. A false narrative. I cannot say that enough in this episode. Welcome back to the podcast, Dan Rosendale. Hello, Rob. How are you? Very, as good as I was when we did the last episode. Uh, Dan has switched mics with James. James is over to my right here. James? Hey, I'm over to the right. Here. I'm here. 
That's right, Rob. So James is going to be doing our voice uh, for this episode. He's going to be reading the protocols. James uh, loves the Jews. I do. I've always been a fan. Okay. So we just want to get that out of the way. We are anti-protocols of the elders of Zion today. Uh, but boo. Dan, boo, and Olivia Literal, our grandmaster. It's me. I'm here. You almost forgot. It's fine. Now, Dan is the only one here who does not have a title. Uh, I, I am Rob C. Thompson. I am our supreme supreme hierophant of the secret order. Uh, James, captain of the table. Olivia, uh, master, grandmaster of the order. Uh, but Dan. Yes, Rob. I think it, the time has come. Really? To title you. It's been coming for a while, I feel It's like. been coming. It's been coming. So let's get this done before uh, the plague. Here, we're sliding this in here. Sort of during the plague, because this will air a month from now, so we'll be well in the midst of mass hysteria. So, uh, let's hope not. Let's hope not, right? Let's hope. S- say a prayer to all of our gods. All right, Dan. Um, let's toss out some ideas here. Now, now there's some things we got to know about Dan. Dan started on our uh, Nazi podcast. Oddly, he's he's being titled on our... Not a Nazi podcast, but on the Protocols podcast, yeah. yeah. You make it sound like we have a second podcast that's like four Nazis. Oh, no. So <laughs> no, 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 we do I not. I feel like as we started this one, we have to say, no Nazis. Hashtag, not, hashtag cool. not a Nazi. Uh, started there, did the voice of an old man, uh, but Dan uh, is also known to our Instagram folks as a person who takes a lot of pictures. Maybe you don't know that about Dan. Maybe you don't, but I feel like we photocred him, right? Photocred the man. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of anonymous on Instagram. I don't really post many pictures of myself. Uh, but most pictures you see of the occult alchemical actors are from me. Many of them are. Yes, indeed. Also, Dan is uh, responsible for doing our, some of our book reviews, which is a brand new thing we do. So, uh, Olivia, you had some ideas, uh, something ocular, because like, he's um, a photograph man. Yeah, like eyes. Eyes. An eye. Eye of, yeah. uh, and, and I thought we should inclu- include the library, right? Because Dan's grabbing yes. those books and reviewing them for us. Right. Uh, so I think if we marry these, we got uh, an eye, uh, the eye of um, uh, uh, the archival eye, the... Yeah. Uh, I, we, don't, we always have an of. Eye of the archive? Eye of the archive. There it is. Archival eye of the so archive. So it is written, so it shall be... Repeated. Yes. I'll gong something in there. So mote it be. Very good. So mote it be. <laughs> Delightful. Okay, let's get down to it. Well, thank you, Rob. Welcome. Lot. Welcome, to the, welcome to the titled crew. You did it. You did it. You did it. What an accomplishment. Put that on your resume. <laughs> yeah, stuck through. <laughs> All right, uh, let's get to this. We, the members of the The Secret Secret Order Order of Alchemical Actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. The protocols demand that society be ruled by a single autocrat. So this is what this secret cabal is arguing. In, so this when is they what gather. it actually says. This, so yeah, we're going to start by going through the text itself cool. and uh, see what it says. So you know, we've talked about a bit about the history that it was. this is not actually the product of Jewish people. There are no Jewish people behind this. It's this Russian guy, maybe some other guys. Um, but we're going to work through all of that. But first, I want to figure out what the heck it says and, and why it's so controversial. Not controversial. Wrong. Wrong. Lies. Yeah. Okay. Lies. Okay. Periodically, kinda, we'll just be like, can't say this that is enough. all lies. We this is all lies. We do not agree. Cannot say that enough. Okay. Uh, okay. So the protocols demand that society be ruled by a single autocrat. Only a despot can rule and organize society, they say. The mob is a savage and displays its savagery at every opportunity. The moment the mob seizes freedom in its hands, it quickly turns to anarchy, which in itself is the highest degree of savagery. 
But in order to establish this absolute monarchy and institute a perfectly controlled civilization, they must first break down and destroy the old one. The peoples of the Goyim are bemused with alcoholic liquors. Their youth has grown stupid on classicism and from early immorality, into which it has been inducted by our special agents. So kind of communism, sort of. You mean the idea that... Like the idea of... There's yeah. a, this conspiracy to bring down the working classes and keep them dumb and drunk. Yeah, and then also the, like, um, yeah, like what you're saying about, like, the mob kind of, too. Yeah. The elders have controlled intellectuals by producing knowledge that will undermine social structures and cause society to yield to their influence. These pernicious ideas include Darwinism, Marxism, to Livia's communist point, and what the protocols call Nietzscheism, which is the strange, which is, this is really strange that Nietzsche would come up at all. Given that Nietzsche was a major influence on Germany's fascists, which with his theory of the Ubermensch or Superman, he believed that there was this Superman, which sort of the Germans interpreted as the goal, right, of, of the, their Aryan program. So this isn't the last contradiction we're going to find in the logic of the protocols read back through the lens of the history that they helped to create. But communism is always going to be a problem in these conversations, and Darwinism is fundamentally anti-religious, so Marx and Darwin, they make good sense. The aristocracy had shielded, guided, and protected the masses, but the elders of Zion had brought them low and replaced them with socialism and communism, which they led and which they used to control the otherwise powerless worker. Sort of getting to the Marx ideas. Conspiracy theorist Nesta Helen Webster was a fan of the aristocracy. See, for example, her take on the French Revolution as a nefarious Illuminati plot in our first episode of this series. So the protocols fit really nicely with the broader Illuminati theory that we're covering over this series. Protocols. The people under our guidance have annihilated the aristocracy, who were their one and only defense and foster mother for the sake of their own advantage, which is inseparably bound up with the well-being of the people. Nowadays, with the destruction of the aristocracy, the people have fallen into the grips of merciless, money-grinding scoundrels who have laid a pitiless and cruel yoke upon the necks of the workers. Economies and industries are manipulated through the stock market, which does not necessarily reward industrial or agricultural productivity, but rather functions according to its own logic, controlled by the elders. Similarly, politics will be rendered too perplexing for the average man to follow. In order to put the public opinion into our hands, we must bring it into a state of bewilderment by giving expression from all sides to so many contradictory opinions and for such length of time as will suffice to make the Goyim lose their minds in the labyrinth and come to see that the best thing is to have no opinion of any kind in matters political, which it is not given to the public to understand because they are understood only by him who guides the public. This is the first secret. Although socialism is the political theory most associated with the elders, in fact, they have agents advocating for theories of all kinds. Here, the Protocol's ability to advance any specific ideology other than anti-Semitism comes into question. If they are behind every thought system, they could easily be behind the conspiracists themselves. Ooh. Yeah, that's some Inception stuff right there. They could be the conspiracists railing against their own Protocols in order to stir up dissent and revolt. That's like next level. But still, it's not cool. No more protocol. No, protocol's not cool. 
Blanket statement. It is from us that the all-engulfing terror proceeds. We have in our service persons of all opinions, of all doctrines, restorating monarchists, demagogues, socialists, communists, and utopian dreamers of every kind. We have harnessed them all to the task. Each one of them, on his own account, is boring away at the last remnants of authority, is striving to overthrow all established forms of order. By these acts, all states are in torture. They exhort to tranquility, are ready to sacrifice everything for peace, but we will not give them peace until they openly acknowledge our international supergovernment and with submissiveness. Christianity could save humanity from the Elders' complete dominance, but it has been undermined by the Elders, promoting the individual's freedom of conscience in choosing a spiritual path and encouraging schism. Ah. Interestingly, the Elders talk of the need to destroy the papal court and replace the Pope with a Jew, suggesting that Catholicism is as much a bulwark against the conspiracy as Protestantism. You'll recall that the Illuminati conspiracy is fundamentally Protestant. That's a point we've been driving home on every episode. The Catholics are in league against the Protestants and are not part of the anti-government, anti-religious plot, except that here in the Protocols, they aren't. Contradictions abound. We have long past taken care to discredit the priesthood of the Goyim and thereby to ruin their mission on Earth, which in these days might still be a great hindrance to us. Day by day, its influence on the peoples of the world is falling lower. Freedom of consciousness has been declared everywhere, so that now only years divide us from the moment of the complete wrecking of that Christian religion. The elders manipulate currency to cause economic crises. States on the gold standard are particularly weak because they cannot print money as needed, and the elders are capable of hoarding gold against them. Economic crises have been produced by us from the Goyim by no other means than the withdrawal of money from circulation. And who are the Goyim again? That's us, non-Jews. Why are we called that? Like, what's the... That's what we're called. Why did I just didn't know what it you came from? You guys love this word stuff. I didn't know where it came from. Like, like if it translated to something in particular. The, or you know, it? these words that we like All use words. in language. <laughs> it means the non-Jew. Okay. That's all I got here. I don't know the history of it. Again, when we think of an Illuminati conspiracist distrusting the banking system because it's controlled by a secret cabal, we imagine a man hoarding gold under his bed and sleeping with a shotgun. But here... The protocols reveal that there is no way to hoard against them. The libertarian lust to return to the gold standard will only further cripple society. And when society has been brought to its knees and its knees broken, the elders will build it up again by installing a new King David on the throne of the world monarchy to rule the planet. The conspiracist often paints him or herself into a corner, or a conspiracy theorist, I should say. If the enemy is everywhere, there is no meaningful action that can ever be taken against them. So when you say we need to get back on the gold standard, or we need to defend our Second Amendment rights, or we need to isolate ourselves from the rest of the world, and we should actually be doing that right now because of coronavirus, uh, but for other reasons, right? If we're taking to the hills, right, to found our militia, the conspiracy theorist has actually created the enemy in such a way that these tactics may simply be playing into their grand plan. There's no way around them. These plans of action are a waste of time. A grand conspiracy theory is never a good reason to make any sort of change whatsoever. I agree. But if you're going to have a conspiracy theory, you might as well make it grand. 
The idea of an anti-Jewish conspiracy goes back to the 12th century in Europe. For most of the first 1,100 years of Christian history, Christians believed that the Jews that lived around them were a lot like the Jews they heard about from the Bible. Oh, those Jews. After 1100, the year 1100, it suddenly dawned on them that Judaism had undergone a major shift with the advent of Rabbinic Judaism and the Talmud in the 6th century. The Talmud, or Oral Torah, offered an interpretation of the Old Testament, or Written Torah, that became much of what we understand as mainstream Judaism today. When Christians figured out that the Jews weren't the witnesses to history they believed, but people who had moved on, they got super annoyed. So they thought that they were the Bible Jews, and then they were like, oh, wait, wait, they're not those Jews because they have this second Talmud. They're not just Old Testament believers. They believe in this other thing, too. It's the Sherry Schreiner episode I just did. Um, that's kind of, I think, what she was talking about at one point. Because she she, talk, she talks about Zionism and Satanism, like, hand in hand, though. Right. But she, I think, compared the difference of, like, the Old Testament, like, the dif- the two different, like, sides of, like, the Jewish... Rabbinical Judaism. Yeah. Yeah, the modern movement, yeah. Mm. But not that modern, right? It goes back a very long time. Uh, So some of them uh, read the Talmud and decided that it was full of anti-Christian sentiment. So they picked it up and they were like, what, the second book, unlike the Old Testament, not only is it not making them like biblical Jews, it's also making them anti-Christian. Others said that since the Talmud's recorders lived at the same time as the early church, think about this for a second, they had realized the truth of Christianity but stubbornly refused to accept it and wrote the Talmud as a kind of way around the problem. So they realized the Old Testament wasn't enough because Jesus taught them that, and they were like, oh, yeah, but we can't do this Christian thing, because, I don't know, for some reason. So they just wrote their own other book. Hmm. Do you see? What a loophole. They were they were not vibing with Jesus, so they just wrote around him. Right. <laughs> this they, is they the wrote, They wrote him out of their story. Yeah. So this is what your anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic perspective essentially encapsulates in the medieval period. The Kabbalah, with its major text, the Zohar, only exasperated the problem. Using the mystical techniques of the Zohar would reveal within the text of the Bible the truth of Christianity say, the sort of anti-Semitics. But Kabbalists instead chose to use these techniques to practice black magic. So they could have used their magic Zohar to find that Christianity is the truth, but they didn't because they're mean or wrong or evil. Do you see see how this anti-Semitism is building? Both the Zohar and the Talmud revealed the Jew to be an ally of Satan, not ignorant of Christ's message, but fully aware of the truth and nevertheless seeking to oppose and destroy it. A growing prejudice against the Jews led Europe to begin exiling them or placing them in ghettos. So that's sort of the philosophy underneath, and then the outward manifestation is how the Jews actually come to be treated in Europe through the medieval period. The physical absence created a myth space that allowed for all kind of anti-Semitic imaginings about the Jews' relationship with the devil. Perhaps the most incendiary of these was the blood libel. In Norwich, England in 1144, a boy by the name of William was found dead in the woods, covered in stab wounds. Thomas of Monmouth concocted a story of an international council of Jews. Yeah, just made little, it up. Little, little uh, boy is stabbed. What? Must must have been the International Council of right. Jews. That is the most. That is the easiest explanation. Each Easter, he said. Oh, here we go. Yeah, this is the blood There's libel. It's very pagan. famous. Yeah, it's it, blending pagan. Yeah, each Easter they gathered to select a country where a Christian child would be ritually murdered. So we are alternating oh, no. countries. Uh, this said Thomas was a response to a prophecy that if the Jews killed a Christian child this way every year, they would be restored to the Holy Land. 
It's like the Olympics. They what? just choose a different country. We took very every two different <laughs> routes there. Well, the Olympics are pagan and pagan and biblical. Yeah, so you're, actually you guys are circling around similar <laughs> themes, uh, but nevertheless. Uh, based on no evidence at all, he claimed that William had been crucified. There was no evidence of William having been crucified. He was just covered in stab wounds in the woods. And he was like, well, this boy was crucified. And the boy became a martyr with pilgrims visiting the local church to give offerings. So this story really caught hold. Unorganized, but consistent persecutions then followed this event. So this was sort of like the beginning of a series of of events. The blood libel myth received the crown's sanction. So from all the way up the top of the pyramid in August 1255, when little Hugh of Lincoln was found dead in a well. A Jewish man was tortured and confessed, and the crown threw 90 local Jews into the Tower of London, executing 18 for refusing to participate in the trial. So they just, they think it takes 90 Jews to kill one kid? It's ridiculous. It is a ridiculous medieval pitchfork, mouth-breathing way of That's thinking That's a ridiculous crowd. You know, you know how these Christian kids are built? It, it might take it might take 90. <laughs> they don't go down it might, easy. It might take 90 of them. Dan is speaking as a Christian kid. Knows how yeah. he's built. I feel like I could take 90 dudes. <laughs> That's some David versus Goliath shit. Right. Yeah. Okay. Oh my God. So these pernicious medieval myths led to the Jews' ghettoization and exile, which in turn bred the modern grand Jewish conspiracy imagined in the protocols. So there's a direct line between blood libel and the protocols. But the protocols themselves were actually not original. So the text itself, right, So it, it, it has this genealogy going back to the medieval made-up nonsense. Uh, but the text itself was also probably plagiarized. The Russian text is tied at least tangentially to an earlier articulation of the theory in Germany. In the novel Biarritz, civil servant Ermann Gotsche... Yep, I'll take it. All right, feel good about that? Writing under the pen name Sir John Ratcliffe included a chapter in the Jewish Cemetery in Prague. That's the name of the chapter, in the Jewish Cemetery in Prague. In this chapter, in his novel, Jews donning white robes meet in the cemetery around the grave of the rabbi every hundred years. They compare notes on how well they have been manipulating the stock market. So this implies that they take notes all year <laughs> yes, about yeah. their awesome they bring manipulation. Them. Yeah. They bring them. They gather together. They can't remember. Like a, like a big well study session. <laughs> yes. In a cemetery. They also talk about how they've been manipulating the media. So this is a lot of notes. Also corrupting Christian womanhood. Whole other notebook. Uh, and then they... See, s- that makes more sense. Yeah, it's a lot to keep a track of. A bunch of Jewish dudes in white robes talking about how they're banging Christian women. Right. You don't you really need many notes for that. But, but you brought them. Yeah, right? Just in case. Don't want to forget. They also swear an oath to continue their work, which they swear on a golden calf that rises out of the grave in a ball of fire. Like the uh, the great pumpkin. <laughs> yes. Yes. Is, like, who else is coming to the party? Satan. Satan's coming. Shut up. Satan's voice. <laughs> also, yes, for real. Satan's voice, not for real, because this is all made up. This is fictional. And the guy who wrote this was writing this as fiction, just so we know. Satan's voice also joins the party echoing out of the open grave. In 1881, the speeches given by the fictional Jews around the grave were rewritten as a single speech given by a rabbi and distributed in a pamphlet as the actual words of an actual person. You got me? So we took this fictional chapter. The sa- the, oh, I thought you meant with Satan speaking. Well, no, it's the, the Jews. Oh, okay. What they spoke around the grave from their notebooks. Got it. <laughs> congealed into one rabbi's yeah. speech. Fictional rabbi, but we don't say it's fictional. We say this is a real rabbi, and a real rabbi said this. 
The speech made it to Russia along with the more elaborate protocols in 1903, and it was published four months before Nihilus's protocols, fanning the flames of anti-Semitism and encouraging the pogroms that would follow. So, the protocols arrived in Germany in 1919, translated and recorded under the pseudonym Gottfried Zerbeek. Gottfried Zerbeek. I'll take it. Zerbeek didn't mention that he lifted the protocols from Nihilus at all and published the protocols along with the rabbi's speech from Godsch's uh, Prague Cemetery uh, in the same thing. German aristocrats, including Kaiser Wilhelm II, circulated the book as widely as possible, and the conservative press ran regular stories about the conspiracy. For his part, Adolf Hitler found the protocols immensely instructive, in quotes. I think that's because they came in pamphlet form. Right, so easy to read and carry around. Just fold it open. Uh, But he did not comment on whether they were true or not. Uh, He didn't seem to care. Whether or not they were literally true, for Hitler, they revealed an underlying truth that drove his politics. Yeah, I guess he didn't really care if it was real or not. Yeah, um, we're seeing, right, the genealogy. But yeah, Hitler didn't care about searching that down. He didn't want to do the research on this. He was just like, oh, good enough. Yeah, I'll take this. This is my evidence. Close enough. In America, now, oh, this is going to cut close to home, guys. In America... The protocols made their way into print, largely through the efforts of Auto Magnate, Assembly Line Pioneer, and Name on Trucks. Oh, Henry God. Ford. Henry Ford. That's right. A guy who, like, all kinds of stuff is named after in this country, yeah. right? Like buildings and churches and roads. Everyone's and cars. Cars. Ford purchased the Dearborn Independent and transformed it into an anti-Semitic publication. This is dark, right? Like, this is a huge part of American culture, these Ford trucks. But they were manufactured by a man who hated the Jews, a racist individual. Ford's paper argued that the Jews had started the Civil War after dominating the slave trade in the American South. So the Jews are also being blamed for slavery. They invented jazz. So that was kind of cool. Oh, Uh, come on now. They disseminated liquor. Also kind of cool, uh, although I drink wine. Joined in the white slave trade. Not cool. Not cool. And promoted Darwinism. Cool. And yeah. Bolshevism. Meh. 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 I guess it depends on who you ask. So, uh, but this is what Ford blames them for. He blames them for all of this. Wait, so he blames them for jazz? Yes. As if like jazz is like a bad thing? Yes, because it, it creates right, these you know what, Ford? jazz and liquor and all this is corrupting us. Yeah, you, you get your jazz and your liquor and you're going to get knocked up. And- right. You know, jazz has a lot of saxophone in it and saxophone does things to people. That's right. That, it makes that, them that crash liquor their Ford. Also does. <laughs> Ford crash their Fords all over That's the place. That's why he was so scared of listening <laughs> right. to jazz. Because they're going to listen to the jazz, drink the liquor, crash their Ford. Yeah, I need to stop playing saxophone in my Ford TM <laughs> truck. <laughs> While driving. Yeah, with the nuts on the back. Yeah. Uh, So Ford ran a series of articles inspired by the protocols. Dan does not have such a truck. Ford, just clarify. Ford ran a series of articles. He finds them racist. Sorry. (laughs) No Ford truck here. Can't confirm. Apologies to any listeners who drive a Ford. You guys didn't know. You didn't know when you bought that Ford. It's not your fault. We're we're educating you now. Yeah, you should have known. Yeah, it's on you. Ford ran a series of articles inspired by the protocols and then republished the protocols themselves at the exact same time the London Times was printing its expose, revealing that the protocols were all a forgery and pretty much a hoax. Weirdly, in a kind of cultural backwash, Theodore Fritsch took the Dearborn Independence Jewish Conspiracy articles, which had been gathered into a single four-volume collection, translated them into German, and published them for the German reading public. So... Ford got his protocols from the Germans, 
created, you know, sort of like elaborated on them, and then the Germans took his stuff, translated into German, and brought it back home. Horrible, horrible. Full, full circle. Horrible circle, vicious circle. The unraveling of the protocols came quickly after they detained international exposure, but the conspiracy was so pernicious that many, including the Illuminati conspiracists, continued to believe in their authenticity, or at least the underlying premise of a Jewish conspiracy, despite the fact that the protocols were a fraud and there was no other evidence of any conspiracy to be had. In May 1920, the Berlin Monthly im Deutsche Reich pointed out the similarities between the protocols and the account given in Hermann Gotch's book, Biarritz. So, way to go, German newspaper. The Germans take it. Like, it's pretty hard to be a German, right, in these conversations. But here we have a German newspaper stepping up and saying, this is, look at this, this came out of this novel. Otto Friedrich poked more holes in the conspiracy story by showing that the rabbi's speech in Zerbeek's book was directly copied from Gotch's book. Philip Graves, the London... So that's how we got all the stuff that we know. We're just giving some credit there. Philip Graves, the London Times correspondent in Constantinople, not Istanbul, discovered that a passage from the protocols had been copied directly from the 1865 French book, Dialogue of Or Enfer entre Machiavel et Montesquieu, by Parisian lawyer Maurice Jolie. That's a dialogue in hell between Machiavelli and Montesquieu. Yeah. So the Times ran uh, three lead articles, August 16, 17, and 18. Lead articles on how the protocols are lies on the London Times. Um, that was in 1921, and it detailed the forgery. A counter-argument quickly sprung up that the Jewish conspiracists had lifted their plan from Jolie. Uh, Gotcha found out about it and detailed it in his novel. So in other words, the f- so-called fictional account was never fictional. When we found out that this was all based on a work of fiction... People started saying, oh, that wasn't fictional after all. He was actually just secretly sharing the truth with us in his novel. You got it? Yeah. Uh, So, in his eighth edition of his book, Zerbeek claimed that Maurice Jolie was really the Jewish conspiracist Moses Joel. Joel had brought this plot as an idea to the attention of other members of the secret Jewish government that, for people desperate to cling to this theory, still actually existed in their heads. Got it? Uh, Loud and clear, Rob. Okay. Yeah, he, Olivia seems like she's struggling. What? Who's Moses Joel? Was he... He was real? like this invented guy who was Oh, he was, was invented. Doing, yeah. He wasn't real. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. That brings us to today's word you may have been wondering about. Mm. Uh, <laughs> which you may have been wondering about actually for a little while now. And that word is Kabbalah. Oh, it's about time we, we did this <laughs> word. Find that word, yeah. Uh, this is a segment we do. We like to do a little segment in the middle of the episode. Let your brain relax a little bit uh, and uh, just just give you some, some deets on some stuff you could use. Is that hype, the deets? It's lit. Sweet. Kabbalah is a mystical or occult search for truth and the essence of God. It's a practice with an uncertain beginning that was first recorded in the Zohar in the medieval period. The Kabbalist seeks to learn this truth of God by 1. Interpreting sacred texts, often using a cipher, to find hidden meanings. 2. Oral tradition passed through a Kabbalistic master. or 3. Direct revelation through an angel, spirit, or the prophet Elijah. And that's the word you may have been wondering about. And now I know. There it is. Hmm. Simple as that. 
All right. Uh, so we use that to break up the topics. Uh, we, we've covered the history of the protocols in their own time period. I want to talk about how the protocols continue to exist today because they do, and it's frightening. Mm. Despite having been exposed as fraudulent in the London Times in 1921, right? Not to mention the German press, the American press, everyone knew this was made up. The protocols continue uh, to have their influence right now. For example, in 2004, Walmart. Oh, here we go. Pulled the book off its website only after (gasps) protests about the way it had been listed. Now, it is listed on Amazon. And Amazon lists the book but calls it a pernicious fraud. I agree that it's good to make these texts available so that we can study them, but only in the proper context. So we know exactly what we're dealing with. Walmart, however, described the book this way, quote, If the protocols are genuine, which can never be proven conclusively, it might cause some of us to keep a wary eye on world affairs. You know, there was just some Walmart book reviewer that was like, mm-hmm, this is my time. <laughs> right. I'll slide this one in here. No one will know. Oof, this is not cool. And Walmart's identification, right, with a sort of rightist thought pattern does not bode well. When I worked at Walmart, if someone had come up to me and been like, excuse me, ma'am, this is on the bookshelf, like, I don't know what I would have, what do you, <laughs> what do you say to that? <laughs> excuse me, ma'am, you may be interested in. <laughs> My God, what does that say about me? Yeah. Uh, Okay, so scholar Stephen J. Whitfield argues that the extreme success of billionaire hedge fund manager George Soros has helped bring the ideology of the protocols into the 21st century. To be clear, Whitfield is pointing out that uh, Soros, who is ethnically Jewish, uh, is the victim of a protocols-like ideology. So Whitfield is not making the... He's not a conspiracy theorist. He's pointing out that this is being done to Soros and that it's unfair. Soros was born in Budapest and fled the Holocaust at the age of 14. He arrived in London in 1947, where he attended the London School of Economics and went on to found uh, Quantum, his hedge fund in London in 1956. Uh, Soros is very active politically. His promotion of liberal democracy in countries around the world and involvement in the currency markets as a hedge fund manager of various nations suggest to some who want to see this, that he might be the agent or head of a secret plot like the secret Jewish government in the protocols. Soros backs a series of nonprofits committed to helping asylum seekers find refuge. For this, he's been accused by far-right European leaders, including Hungary's Viktor Orban, of trying to alter the racial makeup of the continent. Oh. Right, but if we look at Soros' life story... He just really has strong feelings about providing safe harbor for people being persecuted or otherwise threatened in their homelands, because that literally happened to him. I mean, yeah. How dare he? How how dare he care about other human beings? Right. How dare he survive the Holocaust and then care? (laughs) And then want other people to survive similar. In 1997, Soros was accused of devaluing Malaysia's currency as a kind of Jewish attack against a Muslim country. Uh, But it's not clear that a hedge fund is even capable of achieving such a thing. And in 2006, Malaysia's prime minister conceded that Soros was not involved in any kind of currency manipulation in the Southeast. Thank you. 
Thank you for that acknowledgement. Soros is also a major contributor to America's most progressive political party. Oh, most. Let me say more progressive political party. We only have two. We have more, but we only have two that we really vote for. Uh, So we have the more progressive one and the more conservative one. And in this country, the more progressive is the Democrats, uh, which Soros does contribute to. For this, conservative commentator and conspiracy theorist Glenn Beck accused him of being a name I never thought I would mention on this podcast, by the way. Uh, But Glenn Beck accused him of being a puppet master. Not only is this a shameless and dangerous revival of the dominant trope of the protocols, but there's nothing at all to back it up. Soros is not the only big donor for the Democrats to begin with, and there is no evidence that he has any more influence than any of the other major donors in the party. I will say as a caveat, I'm not a big fan of the role of money in politics at all. Uh, But Soros is not uniquely powerful. There are a lot of billionaires just bleeding money all over these parties to get them to do as they please. Way more concerning people doing this. That's how we get to neoliberalism, right? But that's for another day. This is not that podcast. <laughs> put le- neoliberalism. Put, yeah, put neoliberalism in a box and go listen to a yeah. different podcast. Don't do that. We got to finish here. On the more ridiculous side, the 2016 Romanian TV accused Soros of paying dogs to protest the government. I'm sorry? Actual dogs, four-legged, barking, tailed animals. The most vocal political members. Right. So they accused Soros of giving them some cash, some sweet cash, some doggy dollars to protest Some the government. Scooby snacks, if you will. Yes. <laughs> On the which I, was that was marijuana, wasn't it? I should always assume. Uh, well, cuz they it, both eat them and they get a little high, right? Well, I think it's more implied that Shaggy actually smokes. Oh. And he just eats dog food because he has the oh, munchies. He's hungry. Oh, I yeah. see. All right. I just I don't know. I guess I misinterpreted that. On the more serious side, in 2017, a Hungarian parliamentarian made a speech in which he proclaimed as if he were tearing a page from Helen Anesta Webster's fascist 1924 conspiracy program that quote, "The Christian duty is to fight against the Satan Soros plan." Whoa. Yeah. Satan and Soros separated by a slash. The collab. Feet. (laughs) Right. Black magic. In short, Soros' name is often central in what amounts to 21st century revivals of the long disproved but difficult to transcend Protocols of the Elders of Zion. As an extremely wealthy individual, there is a distance that opens up a space for us to imagine into his life all sorts of things. But we have to wonder why Soros is so much of a target when he is far from the only billionaire in the world. And conspiracy requires more secrecy than Soros is very good at practicing. His politics and causes are right out in the open. He's not attempting to hide his advocacy for refugees or opposition to violence. Certainly, the conspiracy theorists can say that I'm missing hidden motives, motives so hidden that there wouldn't be any documentary evidence for them because Soros has either hidden it or failed to articulate it because Soros is so rich and so different from us regular folks. Nobody can truly know anything about him, or enough about him anyway, to have evidence for or against a conspiracy. And so, as I've been saying in each of these episodes, when we have this, we imagine what we prove, what we choose to imagine. Uh, and this says more about us than it does about Soros himself. Mm, yeah. So that's today. Shall we get to Rob's take here, as I like to call it privately to myself? Rob's take? The Rob take part of the episode? We can, we can bring that out of the closet. We can just call it Rob's take. Oh. Rob's what's, take was in the closet? What's, hmm. I don't know. Dan's got a title. He's feeling, feeling ballsy. Go yeah. ahead and label in parts of the episode Rob's now. take. Going all over the place. Slap that label on. Slapping it on. The Jewish conspiracy is not 
part of the main plot in the conspiracy theorists' Illuminati narrative. Fun fact. That thread carries from the Gnostics to the Templars to the witches and the Rosicrucians and the Freemasons. But the Jews are always on the outside. Not an essential link in the chain, but rather part of the atmosphere. Proof that an occult conspiracy exists within and beyond the Illuminati proper. They are of the same mind as the Illuminati, if not of the same lineage, sharing their goals and sometimes joining their ranks. In my Knights Templar episode, I defined myth space, which is the room around a person or group of people where we might imagine conspiracies, as the product of interest multiplied by secrecy. We take interest, multiply by secrecy, we get this myth space. However, the protocols make me rethink my definition. When I talk about secrecy, maybe what I really mean is otherness. The medieval Jews didn't have intentional secrets from the wider population, but the Jews' difference from the mainstream created room for the Christian to imagine. What they didn't understand created an open space to imagine whatever they liked, and this took the form of the blood libel. When the Jews' removal from the European communities to ghettos and other countries, this expanded that myth space, creating room for grander and grander ideas, the grandest of which is the idea of a global conspiracy. Although there is a clear family relationship between the medieval fantasy of the blood libel and the modern fantasy of the protocols, the size of the conspiracy is contingent on how much space there is to imagine into. In the medieval world, when Jews lived in the same communities as the Christians, they could only imagine room for a single murder on a single night. With the Jews separated off from the rest of the population, the room grew to allow for the grandest possible plot to control the world. The forgeries could be investigated and exposed, but that did not succeed in closing the gap where all the imagining was taking place. Sure, this book was a forgery, but says the conspiracy theorist, I still don't know enough about what they're up to, and so I can continue to hold on to the idea that they are concocting a global scheme. The difference holds open the fantasy. The problem for us becomes that the conspiracy theorist defines the us in their us versus them in very narrow terms. Looking through the 20th century and into the 21st, the conspiracy theorist is conservative, neo-fascist, fundamentalist, and at least inherently Protestant. The further anyone gets from that identity, the more different they become and the more room the conspiracy theorist has to imagine conspiracies. By refusing to relate, to find common ground with the other, and to see the other as pretty much like us, we breed fertile ground for conspiracies to flourish. As Hitler demonstrated, the end result of this vicious circle can be cataclysmic. How much, then, are our conspiracy theories worth to us? And how far do they go towards separating us from each other? Might this actually be the grand plot to undermine and destroy us? The Holocaust Hitler built was so destructive, it brought him and his entire political movement down with it. I don't want to sound like a liberal advertisement for tolerance here, that's not what I'm talking about. To prevent false imaginings, hate, and violence against our fellow human beings, we can't just tolerate them and allow them to live their separate lives. We must come to know and accept, and in the best of all worlds, love each other, understanding that our differences are not our demons. Word up, Rob. Word up. Word up. I'll take that and I'll put that on my mom's wine glass. Wow. 
That's a lot on a wine glass. That's a lot of wine. Our differences are not our demons. Oh, okay. Wow. What a, what a great quote for a wine glass. That's pretty good, yeah. I mean, it's infinitely better than live, laugh, love. <laughs> it starts more of a conversation, for sure. <laughs> yeah. If you're boring, oh, we should put this on a... Uh, merch! Mrs. Good Merch. Our differences are TM. not our demons. TM. We TM'd it. TM. That's how copyright works. Yeah, she, kind is. of, actually. <laughs> we can copy... I think we can. We have copyrighted it because when we publish the episode, we kind of... Yeah. yeah. And we will have a claim to it unless someone can demonstrate that they said it earlier than me. It's ours. We did it. Copyright law. Fun. Isn't that? Isn't this fun? Aren't we having fun? Yeah. Talking copyright law. <laughs> In the middle of... Yeah. <laughs> All right. I've got a coda on this episode, actually, that I want coda. to get to. Coda. Okay. One more thing to add. A portion of the English translation of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion was reprinted in one of the most widely cited books of the 1990s conspiracy scene. I'm speaking of Milton William Cooper's Behold a Pale Horse. Now, this is a book I'm going to discuss um, over several episodes. Uh, it, it comes up again and again because it's, it is so important to modern conspiracy. It's, it's sort of like the post-1960s version of Nesta Helen Webster's book. Okay, so... I, I call Cooper the godfather of today's YouTube and podcast conspiracy theorists. The influence of his work, we cannot overstate. What's interesting about Cooper's use of the protocols is that he divorces them from their anti-Semitic message. So many decades after the Nazis and the Holocaust, open anti-Semitism like Ford's or Webster's would have instantly disqualified a writer, even with Cooper's more narrow conspiracy audience. But Cooper isn't really trying to preserve the protocols to anti-Semitism. He's trying to preserve the conspiracy in spite of the anti-Semitism. In an opening comment on his reprinting of the protocols, Cooper, who keeps the original language, asks that the reader substitute the word Scion with an S for Zion with a Z. The word Illuminati for the word Jews, and the word cattle for the word Goyim. So the cattle are the non-Jews, the Jews are the Illuminati, and the elders of Zion are the elders of S-Sion. Sion is an allusion to the Priory of Sion, which is a survival of the Knights Templar situated within the broad bureaucracy of the Illuminati, according to the conspiracy theory. So there is this Priory of Sion, who are the Knights Templar in the modern world, and they're members of the Illuminati. They're one of their branches. And their job is to preserve the Holy Grail. The idea that the Jews were falsely maligned in this document by substituting their name for the Templars is truly bizarre. In fact, it's not actually Cooper's idea. It belongs to the 1982 book, The Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, in which the authors argue that Jesus of Nazareth had a child with Mary Magdalene and that their bloodline had been hidden and preserved by a Templar-like organization through the ages, a story made popular by... Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks playing Leonardo DiCaprio in The Da Vinci Code. Preacher also took this and used it as their plot, like the comic TV show that everyone likes. Oh, really? Yeah, it's like the same idea. Hmm. Fun. I think they even, they might call themselves the Templars. I, don't, I can't remember. Not the Priory of Sion? <laughs> no, I don't believe they used that name. Yeah. yeah, that doesn't roll off the tongue as well as the <laughs> Templars. <laughs> Conspiracists, or conspiracy theorists, I should say, love to point out how popular culture is secretly influenced by the Illuminati manipulating the masses. All the podcasts are like this, right? If you watch Harry Potter, if you watch, I don't know, if you read Goodnight Moon, if you... Oh my god. 
if you I don't know watch all the Disney movies don't, don't in get into order. that don't get into that hole that yeah. good night moon hole all right that's a deep one right because we say good night nobody oh my god don't don't get started who on is your, nobody your good night moon conspiracy nobody please. is nobody because we don't speak of who nobody is oh good night god. nobody Here good night go. moon that's some pagan shit right there yeah, why are right. we speaking to the moon yeah. Yeah, you're right. The moon is a pagan symbol. This is a there's a secret witch plot under the writing of Goodnight Moon. A witch plot situated within the Illuminati. Good night, old lady whispering hush, because you better shut up about the Illuminati. And ladies and gentlemen, we are into the Goodnight Moon hole. In fact, I think conspiracy theories are often manipulating our culture, especially the entertainment industry which goes weak in the knees about stories of a hidden plot where good and evil are easily delineated and the hero is an underdog. Let's flip this on its head. All these conspiracy podcasts telling me that these movies are secret Illuminati plots. Guess what? How many movies are secret conspiracy plots? It's you guys, conspiracy theorists, who are driving popular culture like the Da Vinci Code and the Sundry Books movies. TV shows, comic books that have bled out of this idea. It is you driving the culture, not the Illuminati. It's your imagination of the Illuminati. Real life almost never functions the way it seems to in these pop culture conspiracies. Or just in these conspiracies. But it makes for a really good story. Or at least a good enough story. And that's the draw and the pernicious drawback of conspiracy theory. The story is so good that it's too good to be true. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. Dan's just pleased with me because he got a title today. He is. Damn, I'm, a, I'm on cloud nine, baby. <laughs> Let's do the sources. Protocols of the Meetings of the Learned Elders of Zion, translated from the Russian original by Victor E. Marsden. The Lie That Wouldn't Die, colon, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion by Hadassah Ben Ito. The History of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion by Benjamin W. Siegel in A Lie and a Libel. The Medieval Roots, a chapter by Jeffrey R. Wolfe in a hundred-year retrospective on the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, edited by Richard Allen Landys and Stephen T. Katz, and Stephen J. Whitfield's The Persistence of the Protocols. Uh, my thanks to all those scholars for their excellent work. Uh, and that's that's about it right there. So we do not, again, have an order of confessors. We also don't have any patrons or plugs today because we are in time of plague. These episodes were all recorded, uh, both this episode and the Rosicrucian on March the 13th. Uh, Friday the 13th, uh, and I've been editing them at home uh, in quarantine with the rest of the state of Maryland. So, Olivia, bring me on home. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. Our voice today was James Kaplanchus, who has gone into quarantine a bit ahead of us. Uh, so yes. thank you, Captain of the Table. Uh, joining me at the table, we had a smaller crew, again, because we are dealing with COVID-19. Uh, and that is uh, Dan Rosendale, our newly christened Eye of the Archive. Not only am I glad to be here, but I'm even more glad to be christened. <laughs> it's nothing like a good christening, right? I love it. Ooh, yeah, it's not good. every day that I get to be christened, Rob. So I'm glad that we did some christening before we had to go into confinement. Quarantine. Uh, and Olivia Literal, our Grandmaster of the Order. Stay safe, guys. Wash your hands. Get some canned goods, you know. 
Yeah. Do the right thing. Yeah, do the right thing. Uh, my name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant of our order and a PhD in things occult. And uh, This concludes the first half of our conspiracy series. We are going to move on uh, to a focus on uh, the occult or occultism as a theme. Uh, in our next episode, we're going to talk about the anti-Catholic and anti-Mason plot uh, as an occult phenomenon. Uh, and then we're going to proceed into the 20th century and start doing uh, ritual mind control and uh, the sort of line between paganism and conspiracy theory and fundamentalism and how those all overlap in the career of a man named John Todd. Uh, so we were recorded at Chesapeake's uh, scenic uh, campus. Cadby Theater. Scenic Cadby Theater. The <laughs> what do you say? Scene, I don't know. The scene here is of the back of a our, curtain. Our scenic, empty, sanitized yes, theater. Absolutely, with uh, hand sanitizer at every door. It's just, so just you know. on the ground. It's on the walls. But if you come here, you won't find us here for quite a while. Uh, and this is the last episode that will be recorded probably at this space for a little while. I, I imagine the next time we come to you, the acoustics will be a bit different because we'll be recording from... Your house. My house, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm actually in the process of changing houses. So I'll try to find one with good acoustics. Please uh, keep that at the top of your list. All right. Thank you all for listening. Uh, and good luck out there. Bye.